Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Uh, we continue with our interview series of interesting and eclectic personalities. And today I would like to uh, introduce uh, Francis Menton, who writes a blog or a website called the Manhattan Contrarian. Um, I've been reading this site for a while now and uh, find it uh, very fascinating and thought-provoking. So uh, Mr. Menton has agreed to come on and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, but uh, mostly focusing on uh, his views and, and some of his writings and research into um, energy uh, policy and renewables, global warming, that type of stuff. Uh, obviously, it's applicable to what we've been talking about here in our videos and newsletter about the uh, investment implications. And uh, so he has an interesting perspective, and uh, so we thought we'd have him on. So, uh, Mr. Metton, thank you for joining us, and please feel free to introduce yourself and uh, give us some uh, background information, if you would. Well, thank you, John, for having me on your program. Uh, who am I? Well, I'm 70 years old, so I had a full career behind me. I uh, was a partner in the litigation area at one of the major law firms in Manhattan. And I worked at that firm for 40 years, 31 of them as a partner, and did trial work. I did a lot of trials and advocacy and dispute resolution for a lot of big companies and and successful individuals and retired from that at the age of 65. So I'm not 100% retired. I have a small law practice now. A lot of it is pro bono. Um, I ha actually have an office. I'm on a few boards. I, I continue to live in Manhattan. So I live in, in Greenwich Village, a beautiful area in Manhattan. Anybody traveling to New York, I would highly recommend it to you. There's a lot of uh, interesting things to do, a lot of restaurants, the streets are beautiful, it's a landmark area, and you'll enjoy it. The politics of New York are crazy, no getting around that, and not getting any less crazy as time goes on. So, and, and even though the name of my website is Manhattan Contrarian, I'm not promising to continue to live there for the rest of my life. The politics are really trying to drive people like me out right now. And I don't know what's going to happen with that. But as of now, I continue to live in Manhattan. <clears throat> and it's, it's actually a, a pretty pleasant place. Things have gone a little downhill, but it's not a lot of crime around where I live. It's actually quite nice. All right. Um, so before we get into talking about energy, you've kind of prompted me on a question. Uh, so Let's talk a little bit about, because uh, this kind of actually is uh, appropriate for this conversation. I mean, obviously, you've lived in New York State for many decades in New York City. So, I mean, as I understand the history of like New York City, for example, my, my, a lot of my family, my, my mother's side is from Buffalo, which just uh, elected its first socialist mayor, I think, <laughs> ever, and the second one in the U.S.'s history, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but uh, most of them emigrated in the 70s and early 80s when the steel industry collapsed at Bethlehem down to Florida and other places. Um, so we hear the stories about how, what a mess the city was back in the, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s. I'm not sure exactly that time frame when there was rampant crime, 
the debt problems. It's kind of seemed reminiscent of what we're maybe seeing today. And then we went through this period where you had some, you know, I guess the question is, is there's some discussion nowadays, you know, with a lot of people leaving the city with the nutty politics, with the bad policies, um, will the city come back? Um, does it ebb and flow? You've been there for many decades, obviously. So, I mean, is it, are, are we, you wrote a, um, an article um, when you were talking about the election of the Obama administration back in 2012. And I believe that the, the column name was called Ascending of the Basket Cases. And you were kind of talking about a lot of these democratic controlled cities and the basket cases they are. Uh, I mean, what, what's your view on this? You've been there for a long time. You've seen this ebb and flow. Do these things cycle back and forth or do they get to the point at some point where they just kind of enter the final you know, plunge like the Titanic? I mean, uh, what's your view on that? Well, I, I don't have a complete answer to your question. I mean, I think that the country of Venezuela is in the final plunge like the Titanic. I did write a post, which is one of my favorites. I'm glad you went back and read it in 2012 called The Ascendancy of the Basket Cases, which was talking about the basket case cities. Why did I call it the ascendancy of the basket cases? That was because the uh, vote in what I called the basket case cities was what won the election for Obama. And by the way, that continued to be the way, uh, the way for Biden just now. In other words, in, in the whole country, <clears throat> you have your red states and your blue states, but the election gets swung by the swing states. And in the swing states, you find out that most of the state is red and the cities are blue, so that you have swing states like Michigan, which is mostly red, but Detroit is blue, heavily blue. Like Detroit will vote 90% Democrat. Um, Wisconsin is a swing state and uh, it's all red and, and Milwaukee is blue. Uh, Pennsylvania is a swing state. It's all red and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are blue. And, and then when you start looking into these cities that actually win the elections for the Democrats, those are the basket case cities that I was talking about. Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Chicago, Baltimore is a basket case city. St. Louis is a basket case city. By basket case, I meant extraordinarily high crime rate, dysfunctional government and shrinking population. Now, New York has not really been in that category. You might say New York was in that category of a basket case city in the, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, you were saying you don't know the timeline very well. I actually know the timeline very well for New York because I was living there. And the, the worst time for New York was the 70s. New York lost about 13% uh, of its population in the decade of the 70s. The population went from 8 million to 7 million in that decade and the crime rate soared. And the two biggest problems were taxes and crime. They solved the taxes problem in the late 70s and early 80s. And by solve the taxes problem, I mean that the top uh, uh, personal income tax rate, at, you probably don't even know this happened, but the top personal income tax rate, New York state and city combined was 19% wow. in, in the late 70s, and it came down to uh, 10. 
uh, from the late 70s and into the 80s. That started a huge turnaround before the crime turned around. The crime didn't really start to turn around until the 90s. The crime actually peaked in, in um, the early 1990s, but the crime really turned around after Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor in 1993. And the crime started to come down and the crime came down dramatically over the next 20 years uh, until uh, the end of the Bloomberg administration in 2013. So between the decline in taxes and the decline in crime, New York was not a basket case city at all. It tremendously turned around. The population came back and more, the business community came back. It was doing terrific. And then Bill de Blasio was elected in 2013 and he's been doing everything he can ever since to uh, ruin it. So there, there we are. That's the history of New York. But I would not put New York in the category of a basket case city. And to give you an example, the, the murder rate in New York in, in the early 90s was in the range of 25 per 100,000. It came all the way down to four, four per 100,000. New York became far and away the safest big city in the country. And just to give you some comparative rates today, the murder rate in Chicago is around 25 per 100,000 today. In Detroit, it's more like 40. In Baltimore, it's more like 50. In St. Louis, it's more like 80. 80 per 100,000, 20 times New York's crime rate. So uh, now with Bill de Blasio in the last couple of years, that four per 100,000 has gone up to between five and six. So it's a substantial increase, but it's nowhere near back to where it was, nowhere near. <clears throat> So that, that that's very interesting. Um, the thing, one of the things that uh, being a student of, and I think you uh, have mentioned this on your site, so we probably share some of the same um, uh, historical uh, figures that we've read and, and maybe subscribe to some of their views, Milton Friedman, um, some of these people. Uh, but I mean, my one of my tenets or one of my views, or it's not even a view, it's demonstrably true. It seems to that capital, both monetary and human, will, will flow to where it's treated the best. And I think this recent pandemic has accelerated that to a certain extent, uh, where we're now seeing capital. I mean, I think I even read where private wealth arm of Goldman or some of these larger firms were contemplating or in the process of like moving to Florida, uh, West Palm Beach. I know a lot of wealthy people split their time. Uh, I grew up in Southern Florida. Uh, so we had exposure to, uh, people that would spend half their time in Florida, half their time in New York or something like that to try to, uh, minimize their tax burden. But now we're seeing more of this excess. I think I read an article in the wall street journal talking about, they actually are showing the declines in population where a lot of these states are even losing the congressional seats or going to lose congressional seats. And these policies that continue to be pursued, I kind of want to, kind of this kind of is a good time to bring up something that I think would help this discussion. You wrote in your about uh, section, I just want to read this quote, and then you can I think maybe this will help in this discussion. Um, you talk about they that the, these places uh, suffer from a stifling political and ideological orthodoxy. 
the central tenet of that orthodoxy is that all personal problems of the people in society can be solved by government taxing and spending. The obvious corollary is that since all problems can be solved by taxing and spending, therefore they must be solved by taxing and spending. And anyone who stands in the way of this solution is immoral. And uh, I, I think that's what we're seeing, you know, in real time we have for a while but it's, it seems to be accelerating now with people migrating out of these places or people that can um you just talked about the combined at one time the combined i remember my first job actually was when i was in the liu i worked uh well i had a cousin that worked at bethlehem and they were tearing down a blast furnace he was complaining compli complaining about the same thing this was in the early 80s i mean state of new york tax city of lackawanna tax all you know just get get the heck out of here so uh I mean, kind of expand on that. I mean, what, I mean, is that the real view of these politics? This is what I can't figure out. Maybe you can help me. And I'm kind of being long-winded here. Yes, Do these people well, believe this stuff or is it just a grift or is it a combination of uh, people? I, I, is it a religious experience? I'm not getting why <laughs> these policies continue to be pursued when they're demonstrably don't work. Please go ahead. Um, well, demonstrably don't work is a, um, I guess, a, a hard term to define and, and a hard thing to put your finger on. What occurs, I, I, I've written about this many times, the consequence, the consequence of socialism or the implementation of socialism or of the progressive policies is not an immediate collapse at all. It is gradual long-term relative decline. So uh, you, can, you can compare, for example, Europe to the United States, go over to Europe, it's beautiful. Historic places, fabulous restaurants, culture, historic sites. Well, if you compare Europe to the United States over the last hundred years, Europe has basically stagnated or grown a little. It hasn't, it hasn't become poor, but the United States has far outperformed it. Um, compare New York to Florida. New York hasn't gone away. It hasn't, it hasn't, uh, right, it's, big cultural institutions are still there. It has a fabulous Manhattan wealthy business community. Uh, it, but relative to Florida and Texas, it has declined. So, so you go back to the um, 1970s, the population of Florida was 12 or 14 million or something like that. And, and New York was almost 20. New York's population has barely the state has barely changed at all in uh, 40, 50 years. And Florida has almost doubled. So, so it's not that New York is like going away. It's that it's in a state of gradual relative decline compared to places that are more open to freedom, that have lower taxes, that have less regulation and that don't try to solve all human problems by a, a, a profusion of government programs. So, that, so that's my 
That's my comment on it. Now, suppose you're, suppose you are the, um, the progressive politician. You come in now. You now you can get your hands on all this taxpayer loot, and you can pass it out to all your friends to run programs. So if you're Bill De Blasio, you can give a billion dollars a year to your wife to run some kind of a mental health program that doesn't accomplish anything whatsoever. But she hires all kinds of people who think they're helping somehow. Um, or or you can have a school system that spends $30,000 a year per pupil instead of 15, like, like everybody else, and achieves worse educational results. Well, you, you give a lot of money to your friends in the teachers union, and, and they love you, and you get all kinds of accolades, and you don't even notice the decline that's going on. Manhattan looks the same. In fact, if you look at Manhattan, it's, it seems to be improving. There are new buildings going up. There are um, uh, new restaurants opening. Manhattan actually seems to be improving. It's just that relative to places like Florida and Texas, it's in a state of long-term decline. So basically, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to look at it from the average person, uh, you know, perspective of, you know, say you have children in a school system that's failing. And I mean, you see, you see stories here and there, you don't see enough because I think the media kind of uh, slants its views. Uh, that's a whole nother subject. But uh, parents have to be concerned about their children. Um, they know that the schools not aren't necessarily performing uh, and, and, and people understand, I think at least most people, that, you know, education has always been, and I guess continues to be, one of the uh, best paths to, you know, improving your, your standard of living long term. Um, and, was, you know, just talking about schools, we understand how, how powerful the teachers unions are, and it's not a meritocracy necessarily uh, in, a, in, a, in a union. Um, uh, that work rules and, you know, can't fire people and all these things. And, you know, you just bring up a, a subject like school choice. Why can't even something like that, or maybe it is, and we just don't know about it. How come something like that can't get even among the electorate? Um, even if you're a progressive, are, are the politics in the, in the unions, in the, in the whole bureaucracy, is it just so powerful that it, it, even you, you, I don't see why you couldn't convince the majority of the mothers in these places that these schools are underperforming and your ticket out of this is an education or to a better life. Uh, and yet they, people continue to still vote for these failing policies. Uh, I guess, I, I guess that's one of, I'm not asking you to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. No, I'm just no, curious, but, you know, but, how, how it's just generation after generation. It's like, wake up, you know? No, 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 no. Yeah. You're, you're not in New York, and there's a, there's a far, far more complicated story here uh, than, than you seem to be aware of, and I'd be happy to fill you in on, on uh, some or much of it. Um, why, don't we, why don't we talk about the school system and school choice? And, and, this, and this also plays into why the progressive policies don't lead to an immediate collapse, but rather to a gradual long-term relative decline. Uh, the, the New York 
city public schools have been failing forever. Uh, but Giuliani and to a greater extent, Mike Bloomberg as mayor uh, did some real work to address that. Uh, now, uh, I'll talk about a few things that they did to address it. Bloomberg did more than Giuliani. Uh, several things. One was charter schools. So Bloomberg was actually an advocate of charter schools and that's competition for the teachers union. And he overcame a lot of political opposition and got charter schools going in New York City. And today the charter schools are up to close to 10% of the New York City public school population. Maybe it's 8%, something like seven to 10%. Uh, and the, but the teachers unions never give up and they fight to the nail. So they got some kind of a cap put on the number of charter schools that could be opened. And then they were up against the cap. And then of course, Bloomberg left office and then we get de Blasio and de Blasio is not a friend of the charter schools. And he, he, he continually throws obstacles in their uh, path. Uh, but charter schools have made substantial inroads. Right now they're stalled, but they may very well come back. So I wouldn't give up on them. But that's one thing that uh, it, there was some pushback on. Another thing, and the reason the New York City public schools are famous for spending close to $30,000 a year to educate students. The nationwide average is less than 15. How did it get that way? Well, the main thing is that Bloomberg did it. New York was already at the high end, but it wasn't nearly that out of line before Bloomberg as mayor. And the time that Bloomberg was mayor was a time when the city was doing very well economically and the taxes, the tax receipts were growing greatly. And he used a lot of that money basically to go to end run the teachers unions. And uh, one, one aspect being charter schools but an, another aspect being he adopted a program of quote unquote, closing a school, closing schools and opening schools. So you would take a school where, and, and the New York City school system has a million kids. So there are, I don't know, how many schools, there's a thousand kids, there's a thousand schools uh, or, or more, thousands of schools. So he would say, okay, I'm closing this school. And then he would say, I'm opening two more schools. And well, it would be in the same building, but they'd have a new principal, they'd change all the teachers, they'd change the curriculum, shake things up. The, uh, the, the unions were not happy about this. It became a very expensive process. They opened a lot of schools also and not in school buildings. They, they rent office space <laughs> uh, and call it a school. Um, so they did a lot of that and they, sh and they shook up the educational establishment that way. They created a lot of what are called gifted and talented programs, which was a, a end run and, and was specifically designed to uh, get, the, get the percentage of white kids in the schools up because it was down like 15% because white kids don't stick around. The white parents don't stick around. So, so they would create these gifted and talented programs and they were able to um, uh, get more uh, white parents and white kids to stick around. So these are all things that Bloomberg did, all of which cost a lot of money and got, got the cost way up, but he pushed back quite a bit against the teachers union. De Blasio has been 
undoing this piece by piece, but he can't undo it all, all at once. And it's not clear that the, his undoings are going to stay in place with the next guy. So, so I, I would say it's not as bad as, as what you were pointing out. I mean, the biggest problem right now, and I, I have a daughter now with a three-year-old kid who's starting to look and living in uh, New York City in Queens and starting to look at what the schools are like. And the biggest problem that she has is critical race theory indoctrination, which is you know a, a whole new thing that's just come up in the last year or two. Yes, indeed. Um, so why don't we segue into, uh, or why don't we move into energy? Um, because you write a lot about energy policy. I'm fascinated with energy being in the energy business. I mean, energy basically underpins and underpins, I mean, and um, it's, in, it's in everything. So it can't really be ignored. And one of the things that has fascinated me, I mean, I've studied this also, and your writing does a good job on this too. You have a lot of research and links. And I mean, you could spend hours uh, just on some of your articles reading some of the links. But just uh, one of the things that you have said uh, that pertains to energy is not just uh, not just to energy, but to other things we've been talking about. But I like these quotes. It's like this view around, quote, fantasy over reality and, quote, re reality denial. And uh, as you may be aware of or not aware of, I think I mentioned in the email to you, I mean, I did interview Dr. Michael Kelly, uh, who's a retired engineering professor from Cambridge. Uh, I think he was the chair there. And we were talking about this exact same thing. He wrote a paper um, about electrifying the UK and the want of engineering. And he, I mean, listening to him, he's very passionate about it. And he just cannot, I mean, he's kind of an older guy too. I think you might be uh, acquainted with him through the Global Warming Policy Foundation. But um, he was just like almost incredulous. He's like, these are simple math problems. You know, this doesn't work because of this, this, and this. And, you know, how... Uh, and, and so you've written quite a bit and this, this, this fantasy over reality, you know, we talk about the Biden administration has put out, you know, hundred percent clean power by 2035. All of the masters of the universe are talking about zero carbon by 2050. I don't even know what these things mean. I mean, you're an attorney, so you know, words matter and how you define words. They never define what these things really mean. It's very opaque. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if you start trying to put it in a spreadsheet, you know, it's like, how does this work? How do I fly to Europe with solar panels? I mean, nobody answers these questions. So um, I guess one of the things that uh, you talked about the future of energy in a column well, was last year, and you talked about two visions for the future, delusion <laughs> and reality. And I was wondering if, uh, if you recall that uh, discussion you had there, uh, but you, if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, where we're at with the delusion and what the really reality is. Uh, with some of these things. Well, I could go on and on about, about that for hours, and maybe as long as you'll let me. One thing I, I suspect as a guy in the business, you know at least as much as I do, and probably a lot more, about, about the actual engineering of how these various power generation systems work between a natural gas plant or a wind turbine or a coal plant or a nuclear plant or a solar panel, let alone an electrical grid and dealing with alternating current 
and uh, and and frequency regulation, and and uh, and and things like that. And, and I do not claim any uh, engineering expertise in the in the business of uh, energy or electricity. Uh, however, I I do claim some knowledge, or if if not expertise, knowledge in the area of basic arithmetic. <laughs> I, I don't think basic arithmetic really involves more than anybody learned after the sixth grade, but very few people uh, uh, try to apply it to these kind of circumstances. But when you start trying to apply it, it, it just leaves you scratching your head. Um, so, we are now embarked, I think all the powers that be of the world, pretty much, uh, well, make that Europe, the United States and the UN. I think that China, India, Africa, and the other guys are laughing at us. That's my opinion. Um, but certainly the powers that be of the US, Europe, and the UN have decided that if you just build enough wind turbines and solar panels, you can generate all the electricity you need and you can get rid of these fossil fuels. You'll gradually, as you build more wind turbines, you'll close down the coal plants and live a clean energy future and everybody will live happily ever after. And I, I, I don't think any of them can do basic arithmetic. I don't think they majored at school, although the arithmetic is, is only up to the, the sixth grade level. Um, but then, you know, the funny thing is people are clever. And if you add, if you add wind turbines to a power grid, and let's say you have a power grid that has a hundred gigawatts of capacity on it, and you add 10 gigawatts of wind turbine capacity, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. I mean, the, the funny thing about it is you can't get rid of the other 100 gigawatts of capacity. You can't get rid of any of it because the wind might not blow at any time and then you have no power at all. So you got to keep the whole 100 as backup. But now you get 10%. Well, you have 10 gigawatts of wind capacity. That's only going to work about 30% of the time. So you're going to get 30% of your electricity from wind, or not 30%, 3%. You're going to get 3% of your electricity from wind. And somebody can feel that we uh, burned a little bit less natural gas, and that's great. Uh, okay, now, now try adding another 10 gigawatts of wind, and another 10, and another 10, and another 10. And what happens? Um, it's not all that complicated to try to figure out, although even on this hour long podcast, I would, I would not really try to get into the details of the math of that. It, it really, I think it takes a few charts and graphs and, and maybe a pencil and paper to understand it a little bit, but it's not really that complicated. And you quickly realize you're going to hit a limit. 
And I don't really know where that limit is. And the funny thing is, nobody has really hit it yet. But no, also, nobody has nobody has gotten up to 50% of their electricity generation from wind and solar. And somewhere in that area is a limit. Now, people have gotten above 50% for a month, but not over the course of a year. And once you're up to, uh, Germany, by the way, is in the range of in the 40s, 45% over the course of a year. But when you get up to that level, of course, the, the wind and the sun swing wildly back and forth between full production and nothing. And you never know which it's going to be. Although for the sun at night, you know it's going to be nothing. And then when they're at full production, well, you build more and more of them and you find you're at full production, you have way more electricity than you can use. So, so Germany has managed to get up to 45 or so percent by having Poland as their patsy. And so Poland has a bunch of coal plants. And so the, when the wind and sun don't work, they import the power from Poland. And when the wind and sun do work, they, they send the excess power over to Poland, except the spot market price goes negative and they have to pay Poland to take it, which is ridiculous. And nobody pays much attention to this. Well, they've gotten up to 45%. And what, how, how do they think they're going to get to 70% building more wind and sun? They're yeah. going to hit the limit. That's, and I think we're starting to see that. You mentioned the um, energy transition in Germany. Um, and you're right. I mean, we've talked about that many times, the engineering and the math on this podcast, on the my previous, so most of the listeners are aware of this. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, just from the, you know, political and the thought process, um, you know, you wrote an article, I don't remember the t title of it, but it was kind of optimistic. I mean, I talked to, uh, there's a guy that uh, was one of my first interviewees. He's uh, worked in the nuclear industry for like 50 years. And we talked about this. And what I can't get behind is if these people actually believe that CO2 is going to wreck the earth in 10 years, and I think this is all hyperbole and trying to move the Overton window. I get all that. I get politics. But it's dangerous also because you're putting policies into effect uh, that um, are not going to work. They're detrimental to the grid. They're detrimental to our economic prosperity. They're detrimental to life itself. People in Texas died. And what people don't understand is like, well, Texas, they don't know what they're doing. No, ERCOT knows what they're doing. I've ran power plants in, in ERCOT. I have to submit every year by November 1st, my winterization plan for my plant. I've never, never for fossil fueled plants and renewable plants. And we, uh, we have things in place. But as I showed in one video, uh, if I'm up north, a uh, gas turbine combined cycle plant is built inside of a building because it gets 40 below zero in Minnesota. You don't do that here because the weather, I mean, it, is not, it does not necessitate that. And if you get like we had, I live in South Texas, virtually on the border with Mexico, and it was 15 degrees here for two days straight. And the power was out and people's lives were affected. People died here, children died. And uh, this is what concerns me. What also concerns me is, and you've written about this and comment, I think you mentioned it earlier, the people that we're competing with in a geopolitical uh, sense are not participating in this. I, you know, Europe is in terminal decline. 
uh, as we talked about, it's a kind of an adult Disneyland. And I heard one wag say that, you know, he expects the, uh, in the future Europeans to be houseboys and chambermaids for the Chinese, but <laughs> the Chinese are not going along with this. India, as you well know, I think you mentioned in an article, and I've said this before, the Minister of Energy in India said, we're going to, we're going to develop our country. We're in, we're, we, we have the right to develop. We have the right to use fossil fuels. I'm paraphrasing. I, maybe you have Yeah, some. no, I think the exact quote is everyone has the right to develop. Exactly. So what I don't get is, and maybe you can just shed some light on this, and you know, this is what I don't really talk about. And I'm just going based on your experience. That's why I like, I mean, I, I, it's hard to, like you said, draw this out in a, in a, that's why I encourage people to read your articles because I think you uh, are, are, do this well. You talk about some of the other, what I call intangibles, the political pro, political things that are going on. Some of the, I mean, cause you, you're an attorney, you have some experience with this. It's like, what are we really trying to accomplish here? If you're really serious about CO2, we should go on a crash course of building a hundred nuclear plants. That's what we should be doing. Um, we're not doing that uh this isn't going to work uh people can listen to that discussion with uh, dr kelly i had he goes into he uses the analogy of a cheetah chasing a rabbit if the cheetah is expending more energy than he's getting from consuming the rabbit then you know it's it's not going to work for out for him long term so i mean that's exactly right i mean what do you see or is it going to be so i think you touched on it earlier and i'm talking too much but i'll let you (laughs) say what you want to say uh is it that slow decline? You know, if I stand outside a Wegmans or, you know, Kroger and ask a hundred housewives, are you for clean energy? They're going to have their little t- kids there and rub their hair. Of course, clean energy, my children. Well, if it's going to triple your electrical costs, are you for it then? And we see that that's not the case. So, I mean, I guess I threw a lot at you, but, uh, you know, feel free to comment on, uh, on, on some of the, those intangibles, not necessarily the engineering, but some of that other stuff. Well, it- As I mentioned to you, I have a law practice now and and much of it is pro bono. And the pro bono, much of the pro bono is representing people who are, uh, I guess you'd call them climate skeptics, energy realists uh, in various lawsuits, most of them involving the government uh, or or petitioning the government or whatever to, to, to not do stupid things in the in the climate and energy area. Um, so um, in discussions with those people, with the clients I represent, the co-counsels and so forth, there's a community of us who do these things. And in discussions with those people, there are there we basically break into two camps the one camp is if 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 only we present the right argument here and and we and we demonstrate on this piece of paper that this can never work they'll finally come to their senses and and this will all turn around and i take the opposite position unfortunately and my position is it will only come around when there start to be major failures that cost people either their lives or financially in a very significant way that there's no question about what's causing it. So when the price of electricity triples or or you have, or the electricity goes out for weeks at a time, several times a year, yet then people will wake up 
And I don't think it will happen before that. That's, that's my opinion. Now, you talk about where are the people coming from who are pushing this? And I, I guess my answer to that is they're not all coming from the same place. They're a, they're a coalition, <coughs> excuse me. They're a coalition of different people with different agendas from true religious believers um, and, and, uh, and people who think that man is way over consuming and we have to cut back our lifestyle and go back to being cavemen, <laughs> uh, right? On the one hand, to on the other hand, the people you were talking about, the, the suburban housewives with their little children who when asked if they're in favor of clean energy, they say, of course we are. And, but, but they're in a uh, uncomfortable alliance that really depends upon the, those uh, nice suburban housewives, uh, sometimes referred to as the useful idiots, remaining low information. And people are low information. People are very resistant to learning, particularly to learning things they don't have to know. People will learn what they need to put the next meal on their table, but they don't learn the things they don't have to know. It's like, would you learn to speak Russian? <laughs> You don't have to know that's a huge project. Who would do it? So if you're going to be assigned to work in Russia for the next 10 years, you're going to learn Russian. Otherwise, no. And it's the same thing. Who's going to learn about the, the engineering of the power grid until it starts to fail? Then people will start to learn something about it. No, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I appreciate that perspective. I didn't realize you were, you know, that's interesting that you uh, you take the tack that I probably take also. Um, if I could ask you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, I think you've written a little bit about it. I don't want to, you know, get you to say, talk about stuff you don't want to talk about. But I'm anticipating, uh, we're starting to see now, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, like the media, how they get behind certain things like this. I mean, I remember reading and hearing about my parents and grandparents talk about the media back in the day, they would call people out, um, you know, news, famous newspaper guys, you read about Watergate and all this stuff. And I, I mean, I was a little bit too young to know about all that stuff, but it's like, they've kind of abdicated their role a little bit where they've become av an advocacy group versus trying to be, you know, th these would be like excellent columns, you know, it's like, if we really want to lower CO2, then we can, you know, we should follow the prescription that France did. Not only that, it can be a STEM project. I've said, you know, uh, 10 and 10 or 20 and 10, where I say, you know, build 10 or 20,000 megawatt, you know, nuclear plants in the United States and the STEM jobs, the high paying construction jobs. Because, you know, when you build a solar farm, a thousand megawatt solar farm, you're going to employ five or 600 guys for a year. Uh, low-skilled, semi-skilled people. That's not high-skilled work. It's plug-and-play. They leave, and then you have five or six guys there that uh, replace fuses and uh, make sure that the panels stay dust-free. It's not high-tech. It's not high-paid. It's not, you know, not only that, you know, you find out that the entire supply chain of, like, for solar panels is dominated by the Chinese. We don't even manufacture anything here. So the whole <laughs> thing makes no sense to soup to nuts. And you'd think that, you know, this would be a 60 minutes expose, uh, a series in, an, in some newspaper and saying, okay, well, even if we do 
you subscribe to the belief that the, this trace molecule in the atmosphere is going to render us, you know, into Mercury or Venus, okay, that's your view, then there's a way to approach it. Instead, we're doing the exact opposite of what we should do if that's what you actually believe. And so I think you hit the nail on the head, this loose coalition of people that necessarily probably wouldn't even talk to each other if they, uh, you know, were forced to, uh, or sit down for a meal together. Uh, but yet they're they, they on this one thing, and then you throw in the low information. Uh, uh, it's kind of disturbing to me because uh, it's so serious in my mind that we are, it's almost like we're committing ritual economic seppuku, and we will not be able to catch up uh, if we fall too far behind. That That's my view. And I think you're right. Uh, eventually, the two by four hits you upside the head where you cannot deny reality anymore. No more cognitive distance because you don't have refrigeration or air conditioning or heat, and you're suffering. Uh, but at some point, do you get so far behind that the Chinese, I mean, they just lie. I mean, it's been my experience. They just lie. I've worked with Chinese companies. I can go on for hours. Yes, we're going to have these climate goals. And then, you know, they're in the midst of building 400, you know, 200, 300 gigawatts of coal fired capacity. So, well, they're, they're laughing at us there. But I, I want to, first of all, I want to give you a little encouragement on the China front, but then I want to address the, the, the media issue. Please. On the, on the China front, it's not just China, but particularly China. Um, we've, there, there's a lot of um, uh, seeming inferiority complex toward China going on right now. I would say don't underestimate their incompetence. That the United States has a tremendous strength that has nothing to do with the people actually running our government. And that is that the country is not run by the government. The government is trying to undo that, but even as of now, the country is run by the people and, and a private economy that is substantially outside the control of the government. Not so in China. So in China, the economy is almost entirely under the control of the government, particularly any of the important parts of the economy. That is a huge weakness compared to us, a huge weakness. Um, and the other thing that's a huge weakness is, is their population control strategy, which they seem to be undoing now because they're realizing what a problem it is. Well, I'm gonna tell you, it's not, it's not gonna be so easy to undo. And they have a way, way below replacement birth rate and, that is a very slow moving process, just like the gradual relative decline of socialism. But the, the damage from their one child policy is going to result in a terribly aging population over the course of the next 30, 40, 50 years. And I don't know if they're gonna be able to reverse it at all. We've got our own population problem a little bit, but nothing like what they've got. So don't underestimate the incompetence of China. And there's a lot of wealth in China, but if you think they're a rich country, the, the per capita GDP of China is on the order of a sixth of the US and it's like less than Mexico. I don't know if you know that. I did Le not. Less than Mexico, less than Brazil. There's a lot of wealth, particularly along the coast. There's a lot of poverty in China, which is well hidden away. So they have a long, long way to go. Now they, they report the, the Chinese GDP, ours is like 21 trillion a year, theirs is like 12. Seems like they're rapidly catching up to us and they are, they're gonna pass us. There's no question about that, they're gonna pass us.
but they have four times as many people. So yes. their GDP is 12 trillion compared to our 21. They have four times as many people. So their per capita GDP is like a sixth, like Mexico. So, um, so that's my encouraging news for you on the front of China. On the question of the media, yeah, I had the privilege, if you want to call it that, and I think in those days it was a privilege, of going to a very fancy Ivy League schools and hanging out with a lot of uh, very uh, intelligent people. So I met a lot of smart people in my youth, and many of them are still my friends, but uh, uh, there were a lot of other smart people there who didn't become my friends, but one of the most... <laughs> One of the, the biggest lesson I took away from that is that the smartest people really aren't all that smart. And there are unbelievable numbers of very, very smart people, by which I mean the people who got the very highest scores on the SATs, the very highest scores on the IQs, valedictorian at their high school, top student at Yale, and has completely fallen hook, line, and sinker for Marxism. the majority of them. How could this be? I don't know. I can't explain it to you. I'm going to tell you that the smartest people aren't very smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Is it just, is it, do, do you find, I, I mean, this is really interesting to me because this is, I, I really, I mean, this maybe doesn't apply to investing or anything, but it does kind of because psychology and human nature you know, one of the things uh, I think it was uh, somebody said that uh, I read a lot of biographies. Who was it that said this? Oh, it was the, the Bond King from PIMCO. I forget his name. He said that there's billions of dollars of wealth in history books. Bill Gross. Yes. And what he, I think what, you know, I, I didn't really have a view on Marxism. I'm actually married to somebody that's from the former Soviet Union. So I actually ha have to learn Russian, but just to, that was a good joke. I appreciated that, but you didn't know that, but it's funny, <laughs> but, um, and it's not an easy language to learn by the way, but anyways, uh, I mean, a book that changed my life are two things that really changed my view on it. You know, we have this, you throw up a swastika or you bring any, uh, visual of Adolf Hitler, and people just cringe. It's almost like vamp. It's like a, it's it, in which they should the epitome of evil, if you would. Uh, that's what we're taught. But then you look at what happened in the Soviet Union, uh, forced collectivization of the Ukraine, the Holodomors. I mean, I've me and my wife have been to the Holodomor Museum in Kiev. Uh, we've seen the names of her family members that perished during the Holodomor. Um, so it hits home to you. Uh, you read the Black Book of Communism, written by some former French communists, where they catalog the crimes of these people uh, in Russia, China, uh, various countries in Africa, Central America, South, everywhere it's been tried. You watched the movie, um, The Killing Fields, of what was going on in Cambodia. And you see people walking around with a Che Guevara t-shirt on. If I walked around with, with a shirt on with Adolf Hitler, I'd probably be beaten to a pulp. Uh, I'll be ostracized from society as I should be. And how, somehow Che Guevara is cool. Yeah, how do we get to that point? That's what I, I don't I understand. I cannot explain it. I cannot explain it. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you go to an Ivy League campus today and it is, uh, and, and these are the students with the best SAT scores and the best high school grades. They are the creme de la creme 
of our country in terms of measured intelligence, and the majority of them have fallen for socialism. It is, it is such an alluring, it is such an alluring temptation that if only we can put, it goes back to Plato and the philosopher Kings, if only we can put smart people like me in charge and I see all this unfairness and I see all this money over here and all this poverty over there. And if just they put the smart people like me in charge, I can just move that money from this guy to that guy and fix everything. It couldn't be simpler. And we got to, we, it's a moral imperative. We've got to do it. And they all fall for it, not all, but the majority, the majority of the quote unquote smartest people fall for that. So this is what concerns me, and I'm not saying this would happen in the U.S., but, you know, go back to that quote that I quoted you earlier, where we say that, you know, anyone that stands in the way of these solutions is immoral. Well, if you can designate someone as immoral and a not nice person, or they don't want to go along with this because they're evil, well, then that opens up a whole Pandora's box or of, you know, well, I don't have to treat you as a human because you don't deserve to be because you're intrinsically evil because you don't believe in transferring wealth from wealth you, you see where i'm going with this i mean yes, it, it's a logical and that's what they've done absolutely and, well critical race theory is the is the is the latest uh, branch of this well i didn't want to get into this but i will because i find this this is fascinating this conversation i'm having a good time so we're we're up on the hour if you want to go a couple more minutes i would appreciate it but I, oh, I, let's get into that a little bit because you've written about that. I didn't want to go there because it was investing, but this is actually important in my view. But what, what's the real deal with this? What are they really trying to sell here? What are they trying to accomplish with this? Because I haven't done a lot of research, but I know you've written about it and you've talked about it. Maybe you can give us a, a quick uh, synopsis. Well, I, I have written about it. I mean, again, when you say, what are they trying to do? I, I would uh, come back with the same thing on the on the climate movement, which is that they are not one person, but a a very large group of different people with different agendas and and different uh, goals. So uh, it, I would say a lot of them, in my view, are grifters. Right? They're just trying to make a buck off it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of people of oh I don't understand why are are guilty over their success and their wealth. They are they are plagued with guilt for nothing they've ever done, and they are looking for atonement for their sins. So that's that's uh, that's another uh, a, a group of them. Uh, and there's another group is looking for looking for political power. So so it's like a lot of other things that gain political traction, it's a, it's a coalition of, of different people with, uh, with, uh, with different goals. But I, I think the, the political power aspect of it is the one that's most important for those of us who don't share the goals because we don't want them to be seizing political power and imposing their, their, uh, beliefs and their restrictions on all the rest of us. Yes, I mean, uh, you're starting to see the pushback uh, at a lot of these uh, as it's trying to filter down into the hinterlands from the uh, 
uh, from the uh, Masters of the Universe at the, these universities in these larger East Coast and West Coast places where all the uh, apparatchiks are. But you saw it even this weekend, you know, parents were so incensed at, in Virginia at a county, at a uh, school board meeting. I mean, the school board had to run out the back and put the sheriff out there to, you know, uh, close the meeting down and, and pe people were arrested. They were so incredulous. And I, I, it, it seems to me it's so ridiculous. I mean, to sit there, I mean, this is the problem I have. I mean, I cannot find, and I don't want to be, I'm not pessimistic by nature. And you seem to be very optimistic. You're in the belly of the beast. You've been there for many decades. And everything you've said to this point is you always seem to be able to, uh, you know, find some optimism. But, you know, this has really the potential to, you know, to take one group of people and blame them for everybody else's ills is going to create, you know, I listened to another professor, I forget his name, he was an African American professor, and he said, this is very dangerous for small sec, he goes, you know, whites in the in the country do not think of themselves as a monolithic racial group. Uh, they just don't. Uh, they think of themselves as individuals. Uh, if somebody does something crazy, that's a white person, we don't rally around them, even if it's crazy, we say that person should be punished because what they did. And he's, he said something he's worried about, you know, as we have more immigration, we have more diversity in the country, whites will eventually lose their majority status, but they'll still be a majority minority. And if you continue to push these things, when you're 13% of the population or Hispanics or 18, you create these divisions and you have the potential to uh, cause whites to circle the wagons, if you will, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And then you can really get into some really nasty things. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to devolve into the Balkans, but John McWhorter, by the way, uh, I'm sorry, go say that again. John McWhorter. I believe so. Yes. And I just found that discussion fascinating. I, I, now he wasn't being, um, uh, you know, fatalistic or anything, but he said, you know, this is, this is, a, would be a natural possible outcome and uh, it would not be good for anyone. Uh, but I mean, do you have any, I mean, it seems to me that this well, is just I am so, optimistic. Yeah, go ahead. I am optimistic. And, and uh, what I think is this critical race theory has, has gotten to a point which clearly is too far and is waking up the sleeping masses like those people in Virginia. How did they get a school board that's all of which is in the process of imposing critical race theory on the school? And the answer is they have school board elections and nobody votes but the teachers. Exactly. <laughs> well, now they've woken up the parents. And so the school board has been elected, but they've been elected with no real democratic support. Just everybody else is asleep. Well, now they're not asleep anymore. And, and I think it's not just that school board, but I think right now the Democratic Party nationwide is in a, uh, a position where it can really be tarred with this critical race theory thing. It, it can be tarred with it because, because even the, the, the Biden education department and the Democrats in Congress have all been either supporting it or not blocking it so that every single congressperson is subject to having ads run against them on this. And now there's all kinds of critical race theory stuff out there. Uh, training materials and videos and so forth with, with quotes that can't be stood up for. 
And, and not only that, I mean, I'd like to say one further thing. It's not just that critical race theory treats all whites as oppressors, which is, which is offensive to white people, but it treats all black people, well, they call them as the oppressed, but it really treats all black people as stupid and incapable and not, not capable of succeeding on their own. And black people totally should and will be offended by that, in my opinion. So if, if, if they think about it, I think you have, you have two ways of going about it in life. Try, try to get ahead by claiming oppression and guilting other people into giving you something. Or, or should you get ahead by just working and succeeding because you're a capable person who's capable of working and succeeding? I, I would think that the large majority of them would take number two. No, we've already seen that. We've seen quite a few people come forward, not just academics, but there was, uh, I've seen African-American parents standing up and, and saying the same thing. Like, I'm a person with agency. I'm not, you know, my success in life is not based on what some white liberal uh, gives me. And they find a large majority of people in general find the whole thing offensive. And so I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, as this thing filters down and people, like you said, wake up, um, they'll have elections again and these people will be thrown out. And, uh, you know, I think that that puts a stop to it. I think that, you know, I try to get people to focus. I know I don't focus necessarily on presidential and even congressional races. You know, people really should focus on their local governments what they do. I've, I've been involved in little political things, you know, when uh, you get these little uh, wannabe politicians, I live in a small village and they always try, some guy gets in there, it's a non-paid position. And, you know, it's like, you got to go over there and, you know, get a little coalition together and step on, uh, on these people once in a while and tell them, you know, look, look, this isn't how things are going to be here. And you're well, right. You Nobody can, thinks yeah. about it until, you know, it becomes totally offensive because we're all busy living. You know, I'm not a, a Marxist cadre that's being supported by George Soros and spend all my day as an activist agitating. Most people are working and trying to <laughs> live, you know, their life. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, well, anyhow, go in ahead. In New sorry. York City, we have only one government for the whole city and one mayor for the whole city with 8 million constituents. So that you're your chances of having any uh, influence if you're a conservative or libertarian like myself are, are not, not terribly great. And I, let me just throw in that I've lived, you know, I was a partner of a major law firm. I have lived long enough to have represented George Soros. <laughs> Is that right? That's funny. Um, let me ask you a question then. This is, and you can answer if you'd like. So this is this is interesting to me. So I mean, obviously, a person's views as you age and you get more wisdom. Hopefully, you get wiser. You read more. You have more experience, interactions. Did you start out uh, with these views, or did you come to them slowly and then you morphed, or how how did you start out your views from like your university days? Uh, and then you, as you got into law and then as you got, you know, you said you're 70, I mean, how did you arrive to, uh, some of your views today? I mean, it seemed to be a libertarian bent. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, I find that fascinating how people, or were you always like that? I don't know. Were you a Barry Goldwater guy from day one? I don't know. No, I was not a Barry Goldwater guy. And in fact, um, uh, my first vote in a presidential election was 1972 and I voted for McGovern. Oh, wow. Uh, however, my second vote was 1976, and I voted for uh, Ford. So, 
So I would say by somewhere in there. <laughs> Although I, I was not, let's say, a highly partisan, committed, philosophical conservative at that time, I just was uncomfortable with, um, with a lot of things the Democrats were doing. I mean, I was uncomfortable with um, uh, the, the takedown, the, the hatred of Nixon, which dominated my time in law school and the takedown of Nixon. Uh, I was not uh, comfortable with Carter and Carter's programs in many ways. And then by the time Reagan came around, I just thought he had the right approach. So did you find, I mean, when you were practicing law and I'm sure, I mean, obviously you, you were with a prestigious law firm, and it's just one of those things where I'm sure you, with the other partners, your other colleagues, you have discussions, you know, do you just separate that or were people mature enough to say, well, that's, that's Francis's view and, you know, he's a good lawyer, so who cares? Or do you think, did it affect you at all or do you just kept it separate or uh, because this is New York City, so, or does it matter as long as you're, you know, uh, getting the job done? Did, did it affect you in any way, your views or, or negatively? Basically, the law firm I was with was uh, very non-political, business-oriented in its outlook. And, and you should recognize that if this was a New York law firm. Washington is a political town, and New York is a business town. Now, New York is also political in the sense of having its, its local politics and the politicians it sends off to Washington. But but the, the legal community of New York is, is about the representation of companies and businesses and Wall Street and, and financial entities and financial transactions, which is not particularly political at all. I would also tell you that my firm had a, a wide variety of uh, political views among the partners, but there were plenty of Republicans and conservatives, no, no, no shortage of that. During most of the time, well, I, I mean, I can even, I give you some specific history of it. The, the chairman of the firm from the time I became a partner until 1987, was a pretty famous uh, lawyer around New York who, who was a Democrat, thought he was. I thought he was becoming more and more conservative. And then after he left, he went to another firm. After he left our firm, he like became the head of the Republican Jewish coalition or something called that in New York. So he definitely converted to a Republican. The people who took over for him were Democrats and they ran the place until about a little after 2000. But then the next crowd that came in were Republicans. But none of them wore none of them wore their politics on their sleeves. Certainly not in the running of the law firm. Uh, they, you know, if you if you make enough money in this world, you get leaned on. So they contributed. They made contributions to candidates, definitely. But uh, they did not wear their politics on their sleeve in the running of the law firm. Neither the neither the uh, Republicans nor the Democrats. And it's as I say, it switched back and forth. That's very interesting. Um, 
I know we're over, uh, but if I can ask you one more question, because uh, it kind of yeah. uh, just because it's interesting and you, you've been in New York for so long and been seems like you're pretty plugged in, switched on guy. What's the real story with Trump as you know it? I mean, obviously, you probably have your opinions. I mean, we hear all these things. He, he's a showman. He built himself up, whatever. I mean, what's the real story? People in New York, I mean, I mean, <laughs> did he actually think he was going to win or did he just fall into this thing? And then he got in there. And I mean, he really, I mean, uh, he's not really a conservative, if you will. He seems more of like a populist or maybe even a guy that puts his finger up. I mean, I, I feel like he did some good things uh, around the judges that he appointed and stuff like that. And he, but I mean, draining the swamp, some of these things are hyperbole. You're not going to be able to one person. And he really didn't have the staffing in the, in the, in the bench to really get in there and clean out some of these things. And I mean, what's the real story on Donald Trump? Is the guy a legitimate businessman? Is he, a sh I mean, it's obviously he's a showman. He's an entertainer. He had the show. Um, he, how much of it is BS and how, I mean, do you have any view on that? Do you have any interactions? I'm not saying direct interactions, but obviously if you're switched on in a law firm with a big law well, firm, you probably- interactions. I, I mean, come on. I was a partner of a major law firm. Well, that's firm. what I'm asking you. That's what I'm asking. He was a big client. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, can you say anything about client. that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was a big client for a period of time in the nineties and for a particular line of work which was the financing of the casinos in Atlantic City, which, oh, wow. which was not a business that was ultimately successful for him. But um, I would say for close to a 10 year period, he was a big client of the firm. I never actually met him or interacted with him personally, but many of my partners did. And I, I, I could say some things about it. I mean, obviously there are confidential things that I can't say, but the the, the, the things that I can say are pretty obvious. He was a very difficult witness to represent in a deposition, <laughs> which many of my partners did. Uh, you try to give some guidance on how to approach this process right, and he was very, very difficult for that. He was a very difficult guy to collect a bill from, as you might imagine. Uh, but I, we never fired him as a client. And eventually that line of business went away because the, uh, the, um, the casinos went away and the, the financing, the particular financing structures they use for those casinos went away. Uh, and he moved on to other law firms. He, he had difficulty in getting good lawyers to work for him because he didn't trust them, he, right? He, thought he knew the better way and and then he wasn't good at paying. So he definitely had some difficulties getting good lawyers to work for him. And even in his more recent events, you could see that he's had not the best lawyers <laughs> representing him. Exactly. Yeah. He's a he's a difficult client. But but on the other hand, is is he the real thing in terms of being a real businessman who built his thing up himself and he was an entertainer who developed an audience? Yeah, he did that. I wouldn't I wouldn't take that away from him. You know, he's a very um, full of himself. He's a very uh, narcissistic. I don't think he would even deny that. No, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. I just thought it was fascinating because I had the impression. I mean, I you know you look some of the interviews like the guy he loves being in front of that crowd he that 
I'm not going to get into psychology, narcissistic supply and all that, but you can tell he loves that. He's going to, he's going to have another rally. He's going to start having rallies. I think the first one's July 3rd. I mean, the guy's going to be almost 80 years old. He's talking about maybe running for president again. I mean, he's, you are who you are, but I was just, you know, it's just, I find it so curious because I, I think that when he came down that escalator, I don't think he in his mind, well, maybe he did. He, maybe he's one of those guys that thinks if I do something, I'm, I can do it. Uh, I don't know, but it just seemed like he was surprised. Like I actually won this thing. And uh, I, I think it was a feat personally, because, you know, I don't, I'm not saying I'm not a, 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 a the biggest fan, um, but uh, I think he did some good things, but I mean, I just, the, you got to give the guy some credit, the energy that he had, the, he just, really, in a lot of cases, he outworked in those Republican primaries. He outworked in the presidential run. I mean, you got to give the guy some credit. Yeah. He outworked Hillary, but 10 to one. So I think that says something it, it kind of reminds me of what I was always told. You don't have to be the best or the brightest, but you know, if you put in the time and you work harder and you got the heart, uh, that can, that can some, that many times will get you across the finish line. And, oh, and uh, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a dummy. I think, Oh yeah. No I doubt. think he's uh, he's a very intelligent guy. And I come back to the smartest people aren't all that smart. I said that yeah, said that's, many, many times. That's fascinating. All right, Mr. Menton, uh, we've went over, uh, this was really a great uh, discussion. I kind of wanted to, you know, focus on your articles around energy, went all over the place. I, I thought it was kind of fun. It was really interesting, by the way, you're an interesting person with an interesting uh, career. And I definitely appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk. Uh, like I said, it was a lot of fun for me too. So uh, I, hope, I hope you got a lot of views and a lot of listeners. If you would, um, tell people where they can follow you, uh, because I think you're on Twitter. It doesn't seem to be updated that often, but you, your website uh, and uh, people can sign up there and get email updates, uh, if you would. Yes, uh, the website is ManhattanContrarian.com. Uh, all one word, no caps, no dots or anything like that. ManhattanContrarian.com. And if, if you go there, there is a box right at the right hand top right of the opening page that says subscribe, you put in your email address, you click subscribe and you will get an email every time I put up a new post. And I definitely recommend that be three times a week, about three times a week. In, in fact, you are a prolific writer in that, like I said before, uh, I find just about uh, every art, even though I'm not have interest in the subject, um, I read all the articles because I end up, they end up being interesting. And like I said, there's a lot of work that goes into them. There's a lot of uh, links and uh, I, I, I really like uh, your style and uh, what the product that you put out and uh, encourage people to sign up. So again, thank you. And uh, hopefully uh, maybe we'll have you on again uh, in the future and appreciate you coming on. Much appreciated, thanks. Thank you.